This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Decolonisation, Activating Allies, Rebecca Kittle and Amanda Thomas talk to Mihiata Pirini about why decolonisation is beneficial to everyone and who is and who should be doing the mahi. Tēnā tātou katoa, no mai, haere mai, welcome everybody to this session titled Decolonisation Activating Allies. My name is Mihiata Pirini and I'm talking today with two contributors to this book, Imagining Decolonisation, which was published last year by Bridget Williams. So it's my great pleasure to introduce these two authors, Rebecca Kittle and Amanda Thomas. Becky is Ngāti Pro in Ngāpuhi. She is a senior lecturer at the Architecture School at Te Waka, Victoria University. Her research focuses on Māori identity and placemaking in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the nexus between community creation, social processes and urban design. Amanda is a senior lecturer in environmental studies at Te Waka University as well. And she grew up in the Naitahu Rohe, and her work focuses on how to make decisions about the environment, and that work has led her to explore colonialism and decolonisation, which is, of course, what we'll be talking about today. So um, I might um, just get you to, to start to talk a little bit about the origins of this book. How did it come about? Uh, yeah, kia ora koutou. Um, nei rā te mihi ki te mana whenua o tēnei rohe. Um, kia ora. And kia ora mihi ata, moto awhiki a mātou, māua. Um, yeah, I guess um, one of the... The whole project started with um, Friday night drinks, as good <laughs> projects do. Um, so I, I spent about 10 years overseas in China and in England and came back and thought the world might be a different place in terms of uh, things Māori and... Um, a sort of, you know, a kind of equalising of power relations, but it, for the most part, wasn't much different. And this word decolonisation was being kind of thrown around the place. Um, and I guess I was really kind of wondering, this from my perspective, wondering what, what exactly does that mean? It's quite a sort of esoteric term. It's quite hard to put your finger on. And so Friday night drinks discussions kind of turned to... What is this word, and um, and what does it mean? And um, yeah, and we we thought, well, let's let's explore it. Let's explore the tangible results or implications of decolonisation, because it's quite if it's sort of left in the ether, it's quite hard to to know what to do about it. How do, how do you actually decolonise Aotearoa? Um, so yeah, we came came up with a project called Imagining Decolonised Cities. So my background's in urban design, um, and I'll let Amanda talk in a sec. Um, and um, yeah, so we, we were broadly exploring what does it actually mean for our towns and cities to decolonise them? What is the the tangible implications of decolonisation? Mm. So, yeah. mm. And as part of that project, we were working with Rangatahi and we were um, doing some workshops around focusing particularly on Porirua and working with Ngāti Toa. And in one of these workshops, we went to Battle Hill and we were talking about colonisation. Uh, and uh, one of the students said, but what is that? What does that mean, colonisation? And so we talked about the Public Works Act and how Ngāti Toa's land had been taken um, under the pretense of housing that was never built, land was taken to build roads. And the student said, but who said they could do that? <laughs> and um, <laughs> we were like, yeah, well... <laughs> um, and so... Partly what we wanted to do with this book is, is take those sorts of themes, that sense of outrage, and, and how do we talk to people about colonisation and decolonisation to, to realise those kind of tangible aspects of it. So that the hope is that it's an accessible book that, um, that anyone really could pick up. And, and part of it is that we are not the experts. We're not the, apart from Wana Jackson, I should say, but the rest of us are not necessarily like the decolonisation people. And part of that is that we want to, you know, we're coming at it from not necessarily knowing everything and we hope that that's part of what makes it accessible too. Yeah, that'd be right. Mm. 
Well, I mean, we have an excellent turnout today, and I've also heard that a couple of bookshops the, the book has sold out of. So what, what's the response been so far? It's been pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, we've... Um, we we launched we it pub, got published just before lockdown last year, and so it was sort of it didn't it sort of had a little not a hiss, um, and then it kind of you know it was a bit a bit plateaued, and then after that it sort of it seems to have been on the bestseller list ever since, <laughs> um, which was pretty surprising I think to us. We um, had a lovely celebration a few weeks ago with Minor Jackson speaking at. Unity Books in Wellington, um, and yeah, people people have been using it for reading groups, and um, people have been using it in their courses. And I think one of the really nice things for me about the way that people have been using it is that it seems to speak to a whole range of different disciplines and um, types of people, and so on. Even my family. Well, not all of my family have to say I've read it, but <laughs> some of them. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been pretty kind of uh, whirlwind and exciting and slightly unexpected, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we'll get on in a little bit to talk about the particular framing that you've each taken with your chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a question we could spend all the whole hour talking about. But let's start with it because we want to make it tangible. What is decolonisation? <laughs> Yeah, so, so to be, this, we're, we're walking here being like, now, nah, we, we definitely do not what decolonisation is, eh? So when we get asked <laughs> that, we can actually say something. I think we do. Um, so de- decolonisation, um, Ocean writes in her chapter that it's about a commitment to making cohabitation possible. And in Mike's chapter, he writes about um, that Māori want to live as Māori. And so how do we... Uh, make cohabitation possible in a way that is kind of underpinned by Māori wanting to live as Māori. So fundamentally, what we want to kind of emphasise through the book as well is that this is about structures and power structures. So there's lots of stuff that we can do as individuals, but we always need to be attuned to the way that power has structured a whole lot of different parts of our society around Eurocentric or Pākehā-centric ideas. What does it mean to challenge the power relationships, the dominance of that Eurocentric, Pākehā-centric way of thinking, to reroute with Māori and, and with this whenua, with this place as well? Hmm. Yeah, a student asked me what my definition is the other day and, and just sort of bouncing off what Amanda just said, I think the way I, the way I sort of explained it to him was a sort of rebalancing of power too. At the moment... One way of looking at the world is pretty central to all of our lives, um, and the other the other treaty partners' view is not not that privileged in the way that we live our lives. So how do we kind of bring the balance to you know on par with one another? Um, we did get a bit of flack when we when we first started. Um, UNESCO made a a video of a bit of our project and put stuff on Facebook and some of the comments were like, you're not getting rid of me and my Pākehā family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was, there's obviously a sort of big fallacy amongst some New Zealanders that decolonisation means getting rid of anyone who's not Māori and it sort of slightly shocked me because I thought, oh that's very, like I just wouldn't have thought people would think that. Uh, but people obviously do. So, so people are frightened by, by the term and that, I think that was another reason we wanted to explore and just say, hey, and Ocean's chapter does this really well. She sets out the breadth of the theory on it, and some of it's pretty complicated. And some of it, you know, is saying, to, particularly stuff sort of around Zimbabwe and places like that, is saying, you know, get get rid of um, non, non-sort of indigenous people. But, but for the most part in this country, it's not saying that. It's just about kind of getting that power back, you know, balance. Um, and just one more sort of definition, I guess, we used in the project. Because we were looking at towns and cities, we were trying to be really clear about what that meant for that context. So we had two parts to our definition. One was about justice for everyone, you know, are our cities just places? And the second was really about identities and mana whenua identities being really clear in our landscapes. For the most part, they're not currently. Mm-hmm. 
we've talked about decolonization and, and, and this framing. Well, I wanted to move into this framing that you've taken, which I think, um, Becky, the, the title of your chapter is Colonization Sucks for Everyone. So um, in terms of getting a balancing of power, why is that good not just for Māori but also for Pākehā? Can we, can we delve into that a bit more? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just to say the rationale for this chapter was was trying to write for my Pākehā family a bit. Um, so my father's side is Pākehā. And they're often saying to me, oh, you know, aren't we all the same? You know, aren't we all the same? And that's a very common sort of mantra and way of say, you know, way of trying to sort of equalise us, but in a slightly, well, in a pretty superficial way and not recognising that actually we've all got these unique identities and worldviews that that are subjugated if, if one is not part of the majority. And so... I started to delve into it and actually found that not much has been written on on why is actually why is colonisation not that great for for non non Māori in this country, and because not not much had been written, I sent out a um, a message on my Facebook um, <laughs> my Facebook site, which is what all good researchers should do, <laughs> and um, said to my friends, "What? Why do you think this is the case?" and got back a kind of collection of answers and. My chapter sort of frames frames itself around these sort of six six things. One being, I'm not entirely sure I can remember them, but <laughs> one being um, about Pākehā identity and, and a sort of feeling that there's not a sense of a strong sense of what it means to be Pākehā. Um, that was one. Um, there was one about uh, intergenerational trauma and how. Um, that's often not kind of recognised in the Pākehā community, and yet it's a pretty big deal to have to come to another, well, our ancestors having come from another, across the other side of the world, and, and the trauma that kind of is associated with that. And it's also pretty traumatic, surely, to colonise people, right? <laughs> um, and the issue of capitalism, which is bow- often bound up with co- colonisation. Um, Catherine Delahunty writes very nicely about that that kind of interconnection. Um, the fact that it, it squashes um, Indigenous creativity, you know, you, you don't get to understand the richness that is in Indigenous ideas if you if you only are, are kind of drawing on a majority worldview. And there was probably something else, but I've gone out. It's gone out. I'm sorry. There's <laughs> already a lot of great stuff to work with here. That's great. Do you want to add to that, Amanda? Yeah, no, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah covered it well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about identity um, because it's a theme that comes up in both of your chapters. And um, particularly Pākehā identity, what is it? And how does strengthening Pākehā identity help with decolonisation? Mm. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, I've, I do a lot of thinking about this. So, um, there's a baby at the back of the room, and that's my son, Sonny. Um, and my partner and I, you know, we were thinking about what do we want for him? What do we want him to be like? We want him to be kind. We want him to have a sense of justice. And we want him to have a strong sense of self. Because without that sense of self, that, um, that kind of insecurity, that's what I see in people that uh, kind of move about the world um, in ways that, I guess... Um, yeah, it can be quite problematic. And I think for Pākehā, for us not having a strong sense of self, you know, we often hear people say, we have no culture. I don't know where my ancestors are from. I'm not European anyway, so it doesn't matter to me. And there's a whole bunch of things that flow from that. So it means that because we're a bit insecure, if there's critique, we get defensive straight away, very defensive responses to a lot of this discussion. And then we also try and consume indigeneity. So when people, you see Pākehā, their sense of self they have overseas, you know, they do the haka, they wear a pounamu, those sorts of things. Um, but also that thing of, like, when doing their pepeha and saying, you know, I've talked to a whole lot of Pākehā and they're like, oh, I, my ancestors, I don't know who they are. Um, and that's a way of kind of, like, almost claiming and consuming mana whenua status because it's saying, I'm from here. So I think all of those things lead to a really problematic um, dynamic where we're not confident in who we are. So it's hard for us to engage in conversations about how we've been so dominant and exclusionary and violent towards Māori. Um, And we were having a discussion earlier in the week, the three of us as well, about how 
A sense of confidence in Pākehā identity, there's a fine balancing though, how do we um, develop that without it tipping over into white supremacy and white nationalism? And so that, that's just a question, and that's something that we have so much work to do on, how we have a, a proud, good Pākehā sense of identity without it being white nationalism. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, it strikes me that um, that just that kōrero is a lot of it is at work to be done by individuals in a way. You know, it's like a, a personal journey that you need to go on rather yeah. than trying to aim for one Pākehā identity together. Yeah. Um, there is a there's a really kind of personal sense to it. Mm. Yeah, definitely, and and we you know also the sense that within within Pākehā identity, there's such a huge like any community, there's such a huge spectrum of experiences of our ancestors and how they came to be here and why, mm. and so how we also hold room for that complexity so that, that it doesn't tip over into us trying to say but 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 my oppressed Irish ancestors had such a hard time and trying to equivalise that with the Māori experience so that we can hold that difference within our discussions about Pākehā identity. Yeah. And I think framing it as an opportunity is also quite positive. You um, quote in your chapter, Becky Glenn Colhoun, talking about um, this is an opportunity to build mm. confidence in a Pākehā identity. So that's a good way of looking at it, potentially. Absolutely. Um, and if anyone hasn't read his work, it's well worth reading. And and he sort of he he poses this as a as an exciting opportunity for Pākehā to create the stories that haven't been told yet or to tell the stories that haven't been told particularly well around, around what it means to be Pākehā. So, um, so yeah, I think it's mm. an exciting prospect potentially. Mm. What about um, the other word in the title, which is imagining? <laughs> Why imagining? Um, I think when we were talking over our Friday night drinks, we... Um, we were also a little bit like, well, lots of the framing to date is very much focused on the ills of colonisation, which is, of course, incredibly important, and everyone should know should know that. Um, but what? Um, how do we kind of look to what's possible? And I think um, my, my background's in urban design, and I think one of the great things about design in general is it is it's a, a sort of way of of exploring solutions to problems. And so we we started talking about this, and then Amanda started talking about this notion of utopianism, which has come out of geography. And we thought, well, let's let's sort of put this together and think about okay, what what if we sort of elicited from the the public and designers and so on. Um, ideas about what exactly would you imagine a decolonised cities to look like, so that we've got something to kind of move towards, you know. Otherwise, it sort of still feels a bit like we don't know how to get there, right? Because it's never been, so we don't know. Um, so that's sort of where it came from—a sort of sort of hopeful orientation, trying to trying to sort of give us a a goal, really. How do mm. you know what what are we sort of striving for and um, it's been semi-successful, I think. I think we a few things we might change next time, but um, but I do think the sort of whole um, approach of imagining something that isn't currently um, is not is not entirely well understood in academia, at least. Um, and I think it was kind of exciting to mm -hmm. to look to the future in that way. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Um, I did a, um, a thesis last year in law, but it drew, drew on aspects of design and this idea of imagining. Mm. And I totally agree that um, some of us have a mindset of looking to the present to imagine what could happen in the mm. future, but actually imagining is about breaking from what we know, mm. creating a deliberate break to, mm. to move forward to something different. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's talk a little bit more about the actual work of decolonisation, getting into the mahi, so to speak. Um, and Amanda, you've got um, some examples of what that work actually looks like. Um, getting names right, listening and trusting Māori experiences, um, and also giving things up. There is this idea of going beyond mind work and actually divesting. Mm. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so this, I guess it links back to uh, a strand in Ocean's chapter where she makes that distinction about... Um, like raising awareness and our thinking around decolonisation and, yeah, some of the day-to-day -day things that we might do, but there's a whole lot of decolonisation theorists and communities who say, you know, the reality is that there has to be a land back, there has to be resourcing back to Indigenous communities. That's 
what decolonisation, you know, really entails. And, yeah, so I wanted to kind of speak to that as well. I don't think that there's enough discussion about doing that and how it might look and how that might happen. Um, but but it needs to... I mean, Becky's really the expert in this, but I think it's something like 6% of land in Aotearoa New Zealand is now owned by Māori. Is that right? Or something like that. Something like that. So there's... And there's this huge... Becky also writes in her chapter about this huge disparity in wealth between Māori communities and Pākehā. In very real terms, I can't remember the figures there, but, you know, that... It, shapes so much about life now and also, you know, the stuff around disjuncture that that happens when Māori are excluded from their places and, you know, for all sorts of economic, social, spiritual, all sorts of things that go with that, that we know about from, you know, Māori activism from the 1800s through to today. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to kind of think and write about that a bit more because I think that's another thing Pākehā communities should be doing is how do we think about and go about resourcing back, yeah. Mm. Mm. And there is some kind of interesting stuff going on. I know of someone, a uh, Pākehā family, who have some land in the north of the South Island who are working out how to give that land back <laughs> and literally give it back. So there are some people that are actually exploring ways in which to mm. um, re-resource Māori and... Um, and just to say, one of the one of the interesting things that I was reading when I was when I was doing the chapter about this inequality stuff, and Max Max Rashbrook writes a lot about this. He's also worth reading. Um, is that, that there's a there's a book around called the Piketty Project, I think, um, and he writes very clearly about he's he's also criticised, but he writes very clearly that a lot of uh, wealth that's that's um, that continues and, and continues to grow is locked up in land, mm-hmm. um, whereas wealth that you get from your income at your job um, tends to not um, continue to grow. So, so land wealth is incredibly important. So if you've lost your land, mm-hmm. <laughs> as many Māori have, um, you're, you're, you're really kind of disadvantaged from the get-go, and that's the situation we're at right now. Um, and even Treaty... Treaty um, settlements, you know, I hear some people kind of saying, oh, haven't Māori got enough, including some of my own whānau. Um, but, you know, it's, it represents something like 1% or 2%. You probably know this better than us, Mihiata, but 1% or 2% of the land that was lost, um, which is a pittance, right? Mm. Um, mm. So. Mm. And just to add to that, 25 years' worth of settlements are equivalent to two months' superannuation payments. Mm. That's the same value. So two months of superannuation payments in this country are, are the, the same amount as what's been paid back in mm. Waitangi, of Waitangi settlement. Mm. It's quite stark when you put it in those terms, isn't it? Mm. Um, well, so let's maybe talk about the connection or the intersection between colonisation and capitalism, um, which is touched on in both of your chapters. This idea of the way that we live on the land, the way that we own land as a source of wealth, do we need to fundamentally change that? Is that part of what decolonisation will look like in this country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the housing crisis that's going on around the country is, is very clear evidence that capitalism is not working for us. And, well, it works for some very well. I think 10% of, of, our, of the richest in the country own something like 50% of New Zealand's resources. Um, so capitalism isn't working, um, and we need some other mechanism to um, to provide for everyone, not just those who have managed to make it good. Yeah, and I think lots of other um, kind of more articulate people that may have thought about the way that capitalism and colonisation and colonialism, so ongoing kind of colonial relations, are bound up together. So you know, one of the kind of foundational reasons why white people came here was the opportunity to better themselves by taming and owning the land, right? Mm. And so there's a bunch of people that have written about that one of the core features of, I think they said New Zealand identity, but I think they mean Pākehā identity, is private property ownership. And so that flows through so much about how our society is organised, that if you that you own land and you can do what you want, essentially, to a point on that land. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. In your project, Decolonising the City, do you look at those models and alternatives to them? 
Um, we haven't particularly to date, but um, I, I see another project coming on, <laughs> or a, an extension to the project. Um, I mean, I think there are some there's some interesting work going on around particularly models. Um, I mean, I'm thinking particularly about the housing space in my head, um, papakainga models of housing, and, and I can see James at the back there. Um, it's just on a PhD on the topic. Um, and you know that being a um, perhaps an, a, a way of um, being able to think about land, associate with land in different different than economic and a private property ownership ways to share resources mm. to um, you know build up cultural capacity, real tikanga, all those kinds of things. Mm. So, so there is some interesting work. I mean, even. Um, in Te Aupakia, there's some interesting stuff going on around transition towns, and um, so I think I think there's some stuff happening. It's just um, slightly on the edges at the moment, and perhaps we need to be more fundamentally thinking about the ways in which we live together mm. as a country. Yeah, and the creation of co-housing projects, which I think there's now kind of one, at least one in, a, in all our major cities, including one in Aotearoa. So um, clearly, the desire is there mm. amongst all of us. Mm. Um, Okay, well, can we talk about kind of the way that decolonisation can happen across a lot of different spaces? We might talk about decolonising our language. We might talk about decolonising our cities, our education. I wonder if um, you both, you know, being lecturers in a mainstream learning institution, do you look or do you think about decolonising um, your teaching or the area that you, that, that you teach in? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think about it all the time. Um, there and there's some stuff that I can do, like direct draw on the work of Indigenous and non-white scholars and direct students to read their work. Um, the way I um, the way I hold myself in the classroom and interact with students as well, getting away from that expert non-expert model, um, and focusing on building relationships with my students. Um, but this also comes back to what I sort of said at the start, that I work within these structures that are really tough to move. So, like, our students are evaluated on their individual work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and lots of you will be thinking, well, yeah, of course. Um, but that is one mode of education, right? That's one way of engaging in education. What if we were to think about kind of more holistically as a community? And what if there were different ways of evaluating that kind of measured how far students had come in that semester rather than, you know, they might be an A-plus student who always gets A-pluses, but it might be a student who works their butt off and they move from being a kind of like an E to a C-minus, and that's, you know, isn't that wonderful? Shouldn't we be celebrating that kind of shift? So there's all sorts of, but but to do that within our institution, it's just like, (laughs) oh my God, that would be a full-time job in and of itself as trying to push to get those changes. So this is what we mean when we say that it's structural, our institutions are deeply, deeply invested in particular ways of doing it and to be creative, to try and push those things is why I think we have huge attrition. Well, one of the reasons um, this is that I think that we probably have a lot of attrition of Māori colleagues from our institutions because people who try to do something different to challenge Pākehā centrism within education as an example man, it is exhausting, and you lay over the top of that the racism of those people being pigeonholed as angry brown people, particularly angry brown women, um, and it makes it really frickin' hard for people to stay in an institution <laughs> like that. I mean, you two will have much more to say. I'm not saying you need to spill your beans on this, because <laughs> uh, I don't know who's well. in the audience. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I'm not, not an expert in this stuff, but like this is, this is the sort of stuff that people are up against when they try to do decolonization. It's not just something we can decide to do and change our behaviour. It's this whole oh, shift of these big, stagnant institutions. Mm. Mm. Just, just a little example, riffing off your um, thing about sort of individually assessed learning. I actually had this experience um, last year where I had these two Pākehā students, they weren't Māori, and they were keen to do a group thesis. And um, if you, I think our regulations at university say 15% of a thesis can be marked as a group bit of work. Um, but if you start to kind of think about that, what not that just completely arbitrary? Mm. Um, and why wouldn't, why wouldn't you allow uh, two students or three to work together 
and come out with a mark that's shared across the three. Because if you think about all of our knowledge, um, for the most part, if, we, if, we, if we're true to ourselves, it's, it's co-produced. We don't, we, don't, we don't come up with this stuff ourselves. We're constantly drawing on other people and conversations and experiences we've had. So it's a fallacy to, to imagine mm. that what you're producing is your individual work. Um, and these two, two students did a fabulous job, but it was it was it was such hard work just getting them through a system that was constantly saying to us, "You have to be marked individually." And in the end, they were marked individually, and um, yeah, it was just really disappointing. And I think the university could do a whole lot of le- really simple things to kind of help us rethink. Um, the model of education mm. that we have. Mm. Yeah. I'm in the law space, so I'm a lecturer at the um, law faculty here at Otago, and amongst our law colleagues, we're celebrating the fact that we have our first Māori Dean of Law, so the head of the, the, the law school, um, she's an AUT, Kylie Quince, so we're celebrating that because it seems to me that until we get um, people in those positions of power mm. um, who can who can exercise power in favour of changing some of those things we talked about, that must be a necessary first step. But it's probably not the last step because I can mm. see the potential for those systems to grind those people down as well. Yes. <laughs> Which is quite a terrifying prospect, mm. yeah. Um, so did this idea of decolonisation or the way that you approached this project, did it inform the way that you approached the project and the writing of the, the book? Mm. Um, yeah, I think... Um, I think one of the one of the things that sometimes annoys me when I see people say this is a collection of essays um, is it's not it's it's a it's a narrative. If, if anyone's read the book, um, you'll hopefully have found that it's a story that start, has a beginning and an end, and that was purposeful. It wasn't wasn't meant to be um, a collection of essays, even though we've got different names across the different chapters, and we did you know principally write our chapter. Um, but we wrote it in, in as part of the narrative. So um, we felt like that was um, a slightly more decolonised way to write write the story. Um, the fact that we were um, we were keen to write it in a way that people could read um, is is probably a part of the sort of decolonisation of academia. Mm. I mean. I mean, people talk about this a lot, right? We we write these journal papers that three people read. And if you're lucky. They're, <laughs> yeah. And they're the things that are celebrated by the institution. Mm. Um, and, and actually, these kinds of things aren't. And I just think that's crazy, because surely we should be writing in a way that people can access what we're thinking about. Otherwise, what's, what's, what's the point of us? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's probably... Um, one little little thing we did. And I think the other thing goes back to the project that it emerged out of as well. And so um, Becky is this incredible person that pulls people together and just so supremely generous. So she'll have this like amazing genius idea and she's like, but I need these 20 other people to also share in my glory. And so she just like <laughs> gathers people around her. Um, and that was sort of the genesis of imagining decolonised cities. But from the outset, she was also clear that this was about trying to think about what it means to work at, like in a treaty-centred team. So we're talking, often we think of decolonisation as an issue, a Māori issue that's for Māori to deal with. And one of the things that we are quite firm about in the book and in our thinking is that it is the work largely actually of non-Māori, but it has to be following the leadership of Māori communities. And so to work in a treaty-centred kind of research team that's Māori and non-Māori together um, was at the kind of heart of where these ideas started coming from as well. So, um, yeah, all of us authors were involved in imagining decolonised cities, um, yeah, kind of throughout the genesis of it. Yeah, mm. and I think you absolutely do get that sense reading the book that these authors haven't written these things in isolation of each other. Um, you know, they've talked to each other, they've worked together, um, which takes itself takes work. You know, it'd be much easier for us all to kind of beaver away in our separate silos and then just chuck them all into a book. Mm. Um, but that more collaborative project process is um, that really does come through. I think it definitely wouldn't be as fun to live work. No, not at, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. You're totally right. Um, 
Okay, so in um, your chapter, Amanda, you talk about, well, you briefly make mention of the need to not be a white saviour. Mm. Um, and I think this comes back to what you were talking about just before, about um, who's leading mm. in the space. So can you talk to that a little bit more? Yeah, I think there's a, it's such a tricky, fine balance. There's... Um, there's a real kind of risk of being the earnest, right-on Pākehā, who's the most radical, loudest voice about decolonisation. But that is, can be really, really problematic because often we don't understand the dynamics that are at work within communities as well. We just have no idea. And so I've seen this, the damage that can be done when someone with the best of intentions and good intentions, you know, it's good, but it's not enough. And that they are, you know, the staunchest advocate for decolonisation and it completely through a whole political process. So there's real risks of this kind of white saviourism of swooping in, of leading the charge, of also of kind of this idea that Māori need to be saved somehow. Um, and that's not at all the case. Um, and so understanding, I think, at every step that everything that we do, full stop, is political um, and deeply so when we're thinking and talking about decolonisation. So this is one of the things about te reo as well, like in all these Pākehā reo learners, and I myself spent five years um, learning te reo Māori, and um, that was, has just been an incredible journey. But, but if we don't enter that space understanding that the, the politics, the shame, the hurt of being in those spaces, that we are taking resources by being there potentially. I mean, it depends on the particular situation. There's no... I'm not saying don't learn today. I'm not saying do. I'm just saying that as Pākehā communities, we need to think about it carefully and, and know that doing that is political. It's political. It's not just a nice hobby. It's a political act, mm. and that has implications for everyone around you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, excellent. Really good words about that. Um, I, uh, in your also in your contribution, Amanda, you talk about you give some examples of wording we can use to speak up against racist comments or microaggressions, and this is one of the things I really appreciated about the book. You have talked about making it accessible, um, which I think is critical. Decolonising academia, um, and it, it is this issue of access and, and making things tangible. And so you have got some quite specific examples of wording that can that we can draw on to address when those comments are made. But what was your thinking around including those in the book? Yeah, I have really mixed feelings about it still. So it's at, towards the end of the chapter, and it's sort of like if someone, if you're, um, if you hear someone say, "Oh, Hemi's only in the class, in the law class as a token Maori," what might you say in response to that? And my thinking behind including that is because I am, okay, so. One of the features of Pākehā culture, I think, is that we're really bad at conflict. It's like zero, 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 passive-aggressive to a hundred blowing up and you're never talking to that person again. So if you're going to engage in this thing that feels kind of conflictual, um, and how do you do that? And honestly, I'm still the worst at it. I'm terrible. I hate it. I find it so uncomfortable. But the intention was, we actually, that's, the, that's kind of the heart of decolonisation is we have to get uncomfortable as Pākehā. There's a, there is discomfort involved and it, yeah it doesn't feel great but out of that comes huge learning actually that sense of not knowing of not being in control that's where lots of our learning happens but it was sort of kind of like a maybe a, a way to for myself more than anyone to kind of like get the guts up to kind of counter some of that stuff and stay in a relationship with that person. I don't mind yelling at people I hate. No problems with that. But lots of the people that say this stuff I don't actually hate and I want to kind of still, you know, be mates with them. So how do we do that uh, within a cultural framework that um, <laughs> can be awkward to? Mm. Having said all of that, I do worry a lot that it uh, makes it seem like decolonisation is, again, a checklist of individual actions. So that's the kind of caveat that I still carry with that part. Yeah. I heard a really lovely um, explanation of privilege recently. Um, oftentimes we think of privilege as having something extra than other, that others don't have, but um, this person was suggesting that privilege, another way of thinking about it is having the privilege of not going through certain experiences, mm -hmm. like being accused of stealing, like um, you know, being told, focus on doing something with your hands because Māori are good with their hands. <laughs> it's the privilege of not having those experiences, yes. um, yeah. which really does characterise privilege. Mm -hmm. So um, you spoke at the beginning um, about 
kind of decolonization theorists and and you know you're both from you know environmental and architectural backgrounds and doing this mahi but it must have been quite challenging or maybe daunting to be in this decolonization space did you, did you find that yeah absolutely i mean you know for those of you who know decolonial theory and you will you won't have seen our names in that space <laughs> um you will have seen you know the moana jacksons and the leonie p hummers and the Tina Nutters and so on and so on. Um, so I think we had many a discussion about, oh, should we be the ones writing this? And and actually, I feel I feel really happy that we did. We chose to do it because I I kind of wonder if that has meant that people um, don't see it as a sort of special thing that sort of happens here for particular people um, because we are just. Um, normal people yeah. <laughs> um, so so yeah I think um, we definitely sort of have been worried about it but we did get the street cred of um, Moana Jackson on board so that, that <laughs> has helped as well um, but yeah I think I think that the, the underlying message is that um, we all need to be part of this game or part of this process um, and uh, yeah it's not just for the the kind of hard-hitting theorists to mm. have to kind of, you know, socialise some of these ideas. Actually, we're all we're all needing to be part of that process. Mm. 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 Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and I will go away thinking about um, what decolonisation looks in the space that I work in and move in. So I think we all need to do that. Um, all right, well, we're nearly getting to the time where we'll take some questions from the audience, so we might actually start doing that now. Um, so we have about 10 to 15 minutes for this, so if you do have questions, try and keep them fairly brief if you can. Um, I understand that we have a runner with a microphone circulating, so what I'll do is I'll take, probably identify two people at a time so we can keep the microphone moving around, but I'll just ask you to ask your question and then we'll move the microphone on to the next person. So it looks like we've already got someone with a hand up, so we'll take a question here. Kia ora, thank you so much. Um, I'm wondering, since uh, decolonisation is a big structural thing, which seems that it needs to be a real top-down thing, how do the little people contribute mm. to that stuff? rather than a checklist, but like as a yeah. small person in a big structure, how do you affect change? Um, yeah, so this is, so uh, lots of my research is actually about environmental activism as well. So this is um, stuff I think about a lot. And it happens the way any change happens is in community. So we're never doing stuff alone, like Becky talked about before. It's We're always working together. And I think, yeah, the risk is, it's, it's constant, I mean, lots of you will know that tension between structure and agency, like I'm just subject to capitalism and colonialism, well I might as well go back to bed, and I do often feel like that, um, but it's not good enough and we mustn't, so um, I think like any activism it's about finding your people and working with other people and, and for those of us that are non-Māori, finding, finding our kind of leaders that we listen to and are, are guided by. And that is quite a tricky thing to do as well. But if you are genuine in building friendships, you know, it's about friendships, really. It's about finding the people that are fun to work with, that you want to kind of have a wine with on a Friday so that you keep going even when things are really shitty. So um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a fraught thing, but it's about working with other people always. Yeah. And stuff does change. Like, you know, all the good changes have come through activism, I think. So, yeah. Teresa, pick you yeah, no, I'd just, just back up what Amanda says. It's about the collective. Mm -hmm. You always get isolated and divide and rule is a very, very um, well-known and, and, you know, very sort of common tactic I find the institution uses a lot. So mm -hmm. being able to um, do that collectively is pretty key. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we have a question here at the back, and then after that I think we have a question in the back there as well. Great. Uh, kia ora. Um, I guess mine's at the other end of the scale. I was just wondering, from a big picture perspective, it seems to me like the argument or the debate moving forward is going to be around the difference between redress and rebalance mm. in terms of a lot of Pākehā, a lot of dinner table conversations I've had, both New Zealand European and non-New Zealand European, mm. take the attitude that the redress is complete. So the conversation's complete. Mm. And, I know, and I know that 
rebalance from perhaps our to 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 our Maori perspective is more about is more intergenerational. And my thoughts, and I wonder what your thoughts are on it, is the depoliticisation of that conversation, rather than the politicisation of that conversation, is perhaps a more useful path. And and then as an adjunct to that, how how is a document like a treaty, uh, which is possibly perceived by Māori, I don't know, as a, a very colonial-type document, and the, the Māori understanding of it, how does that contribute to us as a nation depoliticising that redress versus rebalance conversation? Hmm. Um, I think... What do I think? <laughs> um, I think the treaty... I think the treaty is a crucial tool um, for providing rationale for a lot of this stuff. So um, sure it's a you know, it's a sort of document that's kind of come out a certain way of thinking about the world and and um, uh, yeah, but uh, what it has done is it is given those of us who who want to kind of argue for a different way a, a mechanism to say, well hold on, we've got this treaty that's supposed to be this founding document and it absolutely kind of offers, kind of, it's not kind of, it absolutely offers uh, Māori opportunity to have rights alongside Pākehā. The problem is that Pākehā have had all the access to the rights and the resources to date. So how do we kind of rebalance uh, that treaty partnership? So I talk often about the two treaty partners whenever I'm trying to convince a head of school or, or whatever to, to do something. Um, I think in terms of um, the, the, your point about politicisation or depoliticisation, I think one of, the, one of the things I've really enjoyed hearing from people who've read the book is that it's allowed them to be part of the conversation. Um, because, just going back to what Amanda was saying before, I think there's, there has been this this feeling that it's a Māori job, the decolonisation is a Māori job. So having this available is, is sort of one of the things I feel most proud of is that people feel like it's kind of opened up a door to be part of the conversation. And whilst there are people that are, you know, um, not people I'd like to have dinner with, let's put it like that, um, there are lots of, lots of my Pākehā students write, write to me and say, Oh, you know, how can I know more? How can I do do better? So I, I feel pretty hopeful, actually, that there's a there's a generation of young people, particularly coming through, that are um, that are more aware of their role and their um, responsibility. I guess as a Pākehā New Zealander, um, I'm not sure that answers your question entirely, but. Um, but just to say, I think both the politicisation of the treaty and the depoliticisation of the treaty are both important, actually. They kind of almost have to go hand in hand, um, a bit like activists and um, conservatives working within government. Ranginu Walker, in his Kafafai Tonumato book, this really lovely line where he says that, you know, the sort of Māori Renaissance or the era of, of resistance, um, things changed because of both the radicals and the conservatives working inside, nudging government and the systems to change. So, so I really like that idea where they, there's two things working in parallel that are constantly sort of pushing forward in slightly different ways. Mm. Another question down the back, and then we have a question in the back row over here. Oh. Oh, kia ora. Um, I was just thinking about like what you were talking with um, Pākehā and conflict and those difficult discussions. Um, as I've been doing community work over the years and trying to talk about like creating kaupapa Māori collectives and decolonisation stuff, but my experience as a Takatāpui person is that lots of the uh, white people I speak to about this do get fearful Mm. and feel threatened, and then there's that whole mm. angry brown person thing mm. happening. Mm. And I'm just wondering, like, how, when when people respond to you in that way, how, because I just don't know sometimes how to move past that, um, or how to look after yourself and, like, look after the people around you when you're having those hard discussions. I was wondering if you had any advice. <laughs> <laughs> um 
Well, I eat. <laughs> That's my <laughs> way of coping. <laughs> um, and I haven't been to the gym for about six months. So, um, no. I. <laughs> how do you respond? Um, again, I think it's by having good people around you. Um, you just can't do this on your own. And some days are soul-destroying, you know. Working in, it sounds like, almost any institution... Um, across the country where you're trying to make quite systematic change. And so you've got to find your vices that are legal um, <laughs> to, to get you through, you know, and, um, and good people. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure. What. Yeah, I, um, I think from a Pākehā perspective, I think there's a bit... I've been thinking about this after rereading my chapter as well. I write at the end about... Um, so my, my chapter is explicitly kind of to a Pākehā audience and I write about kind of calling out and calling in and that kind of tension. And I wrote in there about just thinking about how we talk to people and I talked about the example of my granny and she's 94 and she she tries with stuff and um, you know there's an anecdote in there about pronunciation and she pronounced a Māori word correctly that I had never in my life heard pronounced correctly um, and so I think about her when I'm responding to people because, you know, they, if, if someone spoke to my granny like that, how would I feel? But I didn't write explicitly enough in that chapter that that, that was for, a that was my advice to Pākehā. And for um, Māori, you know, there's so much tone policing in this whole world that says control, be, don't be angry, don't have emotions, you know, you need a cool head. And so my advice would be from a Pākehā perspective that it's actually on us. I mean, this is, you, don't, you don't have to do anything differently. The only thing that you have to do differently or do well is look after yourself and um, have, like Becky said, good people around you. And it's beholden on the rest of us to be thinking about our fearful, um, insecure reactions to stuff and the impact that that is having all the time on people, you know, um, the sense of frustration and ah, despair that comes from these interactions all the frickin' time. We've probably got time for about two more questions, so we've got one in the back row and then one just in the second row here. You had your hand up before? Great. Yeah. Uh, tēnā korua, um, ka rau e tō mahi, me tō whakaaro i tēnei rā. Um, question for you, Rebecca. I'm interested in your thoughts on opportunities to decolonise public realm, who those, the main actors might be, and um, any good examples do you mean physically, the physical public realm? Or the yeah, you, you, from your urban design lens, oh, okay. where are our yep. opportunities to decolonise? Yeah. Um, yeah, the public realm's an interesting one, and there's a lot of work being done around the commoning and things like that. And I know a lot of Māori scholars get a little bit, um, well, ups, upset at this notion of commoning because it, it tends to exclude the fact that much of this public realm has been built on the backs of Māori land that's been taken from local iwi. Um, so I guess that would be my, my sort of starting point around that. Um, so um, in terms of decolonising the public realm, I think um, given that starting point, I think we need to be thinking about um, what does mana whenua want there? Um, so public realm couched in mana whenua's hospitality of us, of those of us who are not from there. Um, and um, what, what functions, um, design, aesthetic, um, form, meaning would be important um, to make uh, Māori feel like that's their public realm alongside other New Zealanders. Good examples. Um, the example I always use when I'm giving a lecture on some of the stuff is uh, in Wellington there's a, a diving platform um, just by Tapapa. I don't know if people know that um, place, but just whenever it's a sunny day, you'll see, you, it, those of you who know Wellington, everyone's out, out, you know, can't beat Wellington on a good day kind of styles. Um, and that, that diving platform um, is free. It becomes this performance performance space where people who are brave enough can do a, a bomb or a whatever else people do off a, 
off a platform like that. Um, and it's a place to show off and to show your prowess. And even though that seems like a little thing, I actually think it's a really decolonised space because it's it's just sort of it's a leveller, you know. It's it's um, well, unless you're too scared to jump off the <laughs> platform. Um, so that would be a good example. Um, what some others? Um, I actually really like the Tatakaroa Poi Park in Christchurch. Matapopore, the Ngai Tuahuriri mandated uh, design arm, um, have had a lot of input into that park, and there's lots of Ngai Tuahuriri narratives that are clear there. It's a really like adults hang out there, you know, so if it's a kids' park and adults hang out there, you know, you're onto a good thing in terms of it being attractive for a whole range of different people. It's a fun, exciting, it's a leveller again. Um, yeah, so those would be two of my thoughts about some of good examples. But, but yeah, I think always sort of couching anything to do with the public realm and an understanding that that is Indigenous space, that was Indigenous space, and it is still. How do we kind of re and insert an indigeneity into that place. Hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> All right, we'll have our last question of the session, just in the second row there. Thank you very much. Um, as a young person, you hear a lot about, you know, what do you want to do with your life? In your career, what do you want to do? Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the shift from the really harsh, kind of stark imposed doing rather than being, um, owning rather than protecting, um, and the implications of that um, shift both in a systemic and a social way, and in those, both of those spheres. So do you, <laughs> do you mean, so when you say the shifting from doing to being, can you just say a little bit more about what you mean, please? Like the the way we prioritize um, doing is it like a very materialistic or um, I dare say capitalistic like doing rather than just sitting in a space yeah. um, and kind of that shift from this really easily kind of communicated and enforced structure to a slightly more um, being I don't know the, the difference of those verbs like to do or to be yeah. And do you mean that kind of in relation to some of that stuff around like park yeah, response and the kind of impulse to kind of do and be doing the work rather than thinking and kind of contemplating? I mean, I feel it's applicable in a whole bunch of different yeah. spheres and different mini conversations that have had in this that have been had in this last hour. But yeah, in yeah. in response to um, the conscious actions versus the subconscious yeah. just changing a state of being. If that makes sense, am I am I making sense or is it too vague? I mean, I feel like you're operating at a super high level that I, um, <laughs> uh, with a five month old baby, may not be at your uh, level, unfortunately. Um, but I, I think I get what you're saying, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that you're actually just making a really good point. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess I would say that sometimes you do have to do. Mm. Um, so I guess there's potentially. Um, and I, I, I can put, I, I say I completely understand. I'm not sure entirely what I completely understand. But the the no the difference between doing and being. I think there's time for both, um, and it's sort of not one or the other. Um, and just to go back to what Amanda was saying before, um, to not do anything as as an act too. Um, so if you you know you see racism and not do anything about it, that's an act. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's about just getting the balance right and um, the broader kind of um, ideas of. I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking about this perhaps in relation to the Fino and Papatūnaku and Māori notions of kind of being belonging and being part of the the whenua as opposed to having to um, kind of constantly create it for our own ends. Um, there's a sorry, I'm starting to ramble a little bit, but I think I've got one little point. Um, there's a fantastic uh, First Nations uh, academic, architecture academic in University of Arizona, who there's a lot of talk about this idea of placemaking. Um, if anyone's ever involved in things like urban design, placemaking. So it's about kind of creating place in our cities. Um, 
And she talks about placekeeping, which maybe kind of uh, aligns a little bit more with your idea of sort of being and, and the sort of notion of how do we kind of keep keep and restore and sustain place um, for you know for our our ancestors to oh, sorry our what do you call them when they're descendants descendants <laughs> next one oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kia ora, kia ora. Well, we better draw the session to a close there. I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank our wonderful authors, Behenna Mehta. Thank you so much for joining us. Please all join me in thanking our authors. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.